What's up, Fish Sauce family? It's Elton. And Wilson. And we're back with a fresh episode of Fish Sauce. Join us on our journey into the minds of successful founders, operators, and investors. As you learn about their secret sauce, we hope you find yours too. In today's episode, we have Melody Co., who was previously head of product of Blue Apron during their rocket ship times of IPOing. And now she's a venture partner at NextView. In this episode, we learn about the fish sauce value of hustle and humble from Melody as her journey at Blue Apron epitomizes this core value. Through her journey, she made the most out of it and kept persevering through any challenge that came her way. And how do we meet Melody? Well, we have term sheet from Fortune to Thank. When we saw Melody made the jump to NextView Ventures, I cold email congratulated her and asked if she wanted to be part of fish sauce. She responded, yes. What's Melody's secret sauce? Stay tuned to find out. Uh, we've been following your uh, your medium posts and we're just fascinated by the mix of investor and operating experience you have mm-hmm. from like Time Warner to Blue Apron, especially through IPO as a head of product mm-hmm. and now NextView. Mm-hmm. But just to kick things off early on, so how did you even find Blue Apron? Like what are the specific interests or experiences that actually led you to finding Blue Apron? Yeah, so it was more of a Blue Apron finding me. Hmm. So after business school, I joined a startup called Fab in New York and I was a PM and I had been a customer of Blue Apron for about four months when Matt, uh, the founder and CEO at the time, reached out to me. And he was like, hey, you know, I started this company. We were looking for a first product hire, yada, yada, yada. I was like, oh, I'm a customer. The decision to join was more around one. I, I was a customer, so it really resonated with me in terms of the value proposition. It solved a problem for us as a household and me and my husband cook a lot. And I also saw that when I talked to friends about this, it all resonated with them. And I saw my friends signing up and it was a really powerful thing for me in terms of a product offering and a service that actually solves something as of a real problem and or just brings people positive joy. And it was interesting to be able to join a company this small and you know join as the first product manager and see what happens. So- How big was the company when you joined? 20 people corporate at uh, about 18 months old. So it's pretty early. How did the CEO know that you were the right fit? Because I read on a article that you posted, you had seven months of prior product management experience. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. I think by that time they've interviewed a bunch of PMs and I talked a lot about obviously what I did at Fab, but I also had a pseudo product experience as a founder. So I was in business school working on my own startup for about a year. Maybe is isn't that and also the combination of just like, I knew the product really well because I had been a customer. So I think about it a lot. Do you like this uh, this industry, like food and beverage no, or experiences? No, I mean, I, I won't, demand. sorry. It's not say that I don't like food yeah. and beverage. I don't, I don't think about it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think about it like, oh, I want to like go work in a food and beverage place. Yeah, yeah. It For me, it's all about technology able businesses. And... I'm interested in technology because the ability to shape solutions using things that is, is you know software and that it has large impact and scope. So I never really thought of like I'm joining a food and beverage company. It's like a technology enabled business that happens to be about cooking. It's great to hear that they saw a lot in you when they were hiring you. But how, what did you see in the team? How did you know that they were the right team, not just like the, the product or the, the market, but how do you assess the team that you're about to join? It's 20 people, it's a lot of risk. I'm sure you had other opportunities coming out of business school or after the, uh, right before Blue Apron. Yeah, and for me, it was never that, oh, I'm taking a huge amount of risk. I think the whole point of going to business school is so that I can take risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, if I really need a job, I'd go around and get a job. So for me, it doesn't really, it never really hits me of like, oh, I'm joining a Series A, Series B startup and, 
you know, maybe two more two days later it shuts down. Well, so what? You know, so long as you learn what you want to learn, you know, there's not that much of a risk you're taking. In terms of assessing the team, I basically was using you know, Fab. The story around there was I joined, I joined basically at the peak, and the company went through some crazy episodes. It raised a lot of money. It was a darling, and the New York startup scene. And the next second, you knew it was just kind of like collapsing uh, right in front of your face. So I basically joined right before that started happening. So Fab was not very data driven, so I wanted to be like at a more data driven place. Bad founder had, uh, in my mind, had some, you know, have some issues, and I wanted to like find a founding team that was not ego-driven or building a company because they want to be famous. And Fab, you know, I think the problem with that is like, it didn't really solve a real need. It tried to be the Amazon for design, but I don't necessarily know if people needed Amazon for design. So I needed to join something that I feel like the product actually addresses a real need and a pain point. So those are like kind of the mirror opposite I was looking for, but I think that gets biased because of the experience that I was in at that moment. I think a lot of our guests always wonder, ask the questions like, how do you find that perfect startup at the right time? So when you joined Fab, you mentioned that it was reaching its peak. Mm -hmm. And then when you joined Blue Apron, you mentioned that like you had awesome opportunities at the company and kept on getting promoted every six to nine months. Also, and, by the way, that wasn't obvious when I joined. Yeah. I, I was joined as a product manager and Correct, right? you know just roll up your sleeve and build stuff. So how do you um, know when to join and at what position and how do you get faced with those opportunities um, in front of you? Because right? that's, a, that's a challenge within itself for a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't necessarily know if that's the right question to ask. I think it's not like, oh, you should go try to find a lottery ticket. I think a lottery ticket happens just on its own. And I think it's really hard to have a master plan for that because then you'll be disappointed. You should join something where you like the people, you think they're all really smart, you learn from them. The role, the functional role that you're signing up for today that you think you'll enjoy, not what you think three years from now it could potentially become. Well, that's great too, but I think a lot of this stuff is very circumstantial. It's, you know, right timing, right place, right people. You will have no idea by the time, you know, when you're talking to companies. So I, I, I actually think it's important to focus on what you're walking into now. And, you know, it'd be bonus if you are passionate about the product, the service, what the company is trying to achieve. But I think cultural fit, you know, oh, this is a culture that has values that align with what my values are. You know, whoever I'm reporting to, I respect this person, this person. We are aligned in terms of values, in terms of, oh, how to develop talent. Um, because I think that's, a, a better way to to make sure that you're not walking into a situation that disappoints you after the fact. Yeah, and and that's true. Like you can't really predict a lot of things, but one thing you can know is like how they make decisions or their, their right. values, the, the way they treat their people, right. and whatnot. But can you share a little bit more about the phases of time at Blue Apron? You've been there for uh, you were there for about three and a half three years. Three and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. So were, were there was this one big phase or were there like different phase to your experience there? Yeah. And any surprises that you didn't know coming? Oh, into many the surprises. <laughs> Uh, most of them positive ones. So I will roughly divide my blue apron time into, I think of it as like three chapters. Chapter And each chapter is roughly a year, a year and a half. I joined the beginning of 2014, and as I mentioned, as a product manager. When blue apron set out to hire one PM, they actually hired two people. So I joined a few days before another PM that was hired at the same time. We basically started the product team. And when I walked in, there were four engineers, you know, no designers, no data science people. We were the brand new PMs. Nobody knew like what product managers does, especially the technology enabled business as opposed to a pure software company. So the first chapter was like 15 months of an IC individual contributor role that had a very large scope. 
because it was kind of like a wild, wild west. They had a quote unquote roadmap, basically a Google sheet of wish, wish list items from the marketing team, the operations team. And we literally just went down me and Dan, this other PM who later became part of my team. We were like, okay, Melody takes this, Dan takes that. And we just immediately start scoping and building and shipping. And can you share quickly what product you were working on within Blue Apron? My first project was launching what we called meal preferences. So before that, Blue Apron only ships you either an entire omnivore menu or an entire vegetarian menu. You only have two sets. You don't like those two sets. Well, bad luck. <laughs> so when I walked in, they were towards the end of launching meal preferences. So I basically drove it to launch and that gives all the dietary preferences ability say I don't eat pork or I don't eat beef and basically assigns recipes through the user interface and just make sure you understand what you're getting. So that was the first one. Then I immediately start working on revamping our customer experience and customer service tool. And then I worked on what internally we call a shipping dashboard. Basically is a component of a WMS warehouse management system that keeps track of all the boxes that we're supposed to pack by facility, by day, uh, by combinations of recipes. And then I worked on what we call the enhanced recipe page, which is basically the digital experience of the recipe page, but completely revamped as a UI and adding concepts like, hey, this is like an attached video of how to slice onion. These four projects all happened within four months. I joined in February, September, fact track before that, July, so basically four months in, they're like, oh, we have this thing called the Blue Apron Cookbook and want to sell it. And I was like, oh, where are you selling it? This is from talking to a marketing team. They're like, oh, well, we need you to like build a store. I was like, wait, what? You told us this is like May and the two months before they were selling the book. I was like, you know, you realize that you don't just like set up an e-commerce shop with a snap of a finger, right? So we had to do that. So what's, what's interesting is like you mentioned being part of SaaS businesses and operations businesses, et cetera. And it's kind of like, where does the decision making lie? Yeah. And if the marketing team wanted to do something, does the product team ultimately just have to do it? Or? So that was actually, it was a good question because it, that was very much the culture in, initially. And that kind of parlayed into why eventually we needed to build a product team. We needed a head of product because there's this needing to be more of a collaboration as opposed to like post hoc decision making. And I think that that's very common for a lot of technology enabled businesses because most other functional teams don't understand what it takes to build software or what it takes to like maneuver software to do what we need to do as a business. The rule of thumb is that you just always need more lead time than you think you need because software engineering is not something that you just do it in like. So where should the power in decision making lie? The, the product manager, the general manager, the CEO, the, the marketing, head of marketing? I think, you know, it depends on the project. At the end of the day, you know, the organization needs to have a pretty, I would say a pretty good decision making process. At a company level, these are the initiatives. And then it depends on which initiative touches which functional team. The head of these functional teams and product is a functional team needs to get together and make sure that, oh, how are we prioritizing? Are we doing this or are we doing that? We can do both of them. There's real bandwidth concern. So I would say, you know, if it's a digital experience, the PM should make the final call. If it's a marketing campaign, obviously the marketing manager makes the final call. These two teams, they need to be able to understand each other's work and they need to be able to communicate. So that, that first chapter lasted about 15 months. At about like a 10 month mark, I report to our founder CTO and his name is Ilya. And one time, you know, November 14, he basically was like, well, you know, we should at some point have have had a product. At that time, engineering teams ballooned to 15 and have four product managers. So two additional PMs joined the team and everybody reported to him directly, so meaning he had close to 20 direct reports. He realized that he needed to start building engineer management structure and also seeing that there's some 
the, the challenges of collaborating with other teams while you have a head of marketing, a head of ops, but you didn't have a voice kind of representing the product team. So then we went on to for about four or five months of prepping me and or just like making sure that we too know what this role is. And finally, uh, I was promoted to a director of product and 15 months later after I started. So that's like chapter two. So the first time managing people, and that was the first time people manager when I took that role. And it was a really bizarre experience because I was also getting promoted to manage all my peers, including the guy, Dan, who joined two days after me, basically. So that was a lot of fun. I would say- Any key learnings in that, those moments? Yeah. You have to yeah. talk to them or what do you have to do? And it happens a lot in hyper-growth startups. Right. I would say it's interesting because Ilya and I both worried a lot about this transition and he worried more so than I did. It was challenging because I wasn't in a position to have one-on-ones with them. And the way I would usually go about solving problems as a manager is like, well, let me understand your objective and let me understand the company's objectives. And let me try to like figure out a Venn diagram to make sure there's like a lot of overlap. And that's how I think managers should like work. But I wasn't in a position to access that information because I'm like not going to be, hey, I'm about to be your boss. Let me like figure out like what you want to do at Blue Apron professionally. So that was really tricky. And I think mentally I was like pretty stressed out. The other challenge with that transition was also that I was basically doing three people's worth of product work. And part of the reason they needed to promote me is because the product team needed to grow. But I wasn't in a position to hire. One day I wasn't, you know, actually in that role because I can't go outsource candidates and say, hey, I am kind of going to be this hiring manager, so I want to talk to you. So the minute I got down that new responsibility, I was basically extremely behind because I needed two PMs immediately. I was doing all these IC work and I had to manage three other people who used to be my peer. Now I would say the transition actually happened better than expected, but Ilya and I worried about it for a long time. And that also dragged on the decision-making, which exacerbated my problem because I couldn't go out and hire. It was a period of like four or five months where I feel like I needed to step in to do the job without the title. But at the same time, there's also very awkward moments that at some point I was like, well, they're going to think it's bizarre because why am I in their business? Like, why am I here to say that this is how we should function as a team? Because I am not the head of product. I'm just a PM. I mean, like I'm pretty senior and I have a lot of scope. I feel that there's a reason this role needed to exist. So once I get into this role, I just need to show that why am I here? Like, why am I, why am I in this title? Why am I in this scope? Because very quickly after the transition, everybody realized like, oh, this actually is easier now. Melody go negotiate with the head of marketing. Melody go figure out how we do roadmap planning. Melody goes to like figure out how we hire so we all not dying. And Melody go like negotiate with Matt, the CEO, on like how we should make key decisions. So like that, that's the type of thing that is like harder to envision before you stepped into a role, but What easier. I'm hearing is like, one is uh, it's better for the company organizationally. There's a lot of coordination that you can help out with and you actually help each individual's life, each of the PMs. Right, because I also start coaching and someone's responsible for their career progression to make sure that the scope division makes sense, to think about org design, how do we get more PMs, how do we like negotiate with the engineering team. And this is also the other challenge with this phase is that we didn't have a counterpart on the engineering side. So. I was the most senior across the technology organization. And we had a few engineer managers that I've just promoted and they're first time engineer managers. So there's a lot of handholding that needed to happen. I would run sprint planning, I would run like architectural review. So I would basically almost double as head of engineering for a while, even though I had like zero engineering background. The second phase basically was about first time people manager needed to go out hire people, but it's like one layer of management structure. In addition to product management, I also had to take on product design. 
So when we first hired a designer, he's a visual designer, he reported to me. And after I took on the director of product role, we realized, I realized that in order for our PM team to scale, I need more senior product designer. I need to build a real product design practice. So I also had to start doing that. You know, six months later, I basically had to like hire like six more people. And I also needed to hire uh, more PMs. So that, that, this chapter probably lasts about like a year, year, a year-ish. And I said the third chapter is probably the most intense. Basically started out like early, mid-2016 all the way through I left. So this is when product management needs to get bigger. And product design, all these designs were reporting to me, which was not good. I realized like I need a senior design leader. I need a senior product leader for the consumer product team. And I get constantly got pulled down when you're like, growing really quickly as an organization and you realize that and you don't have enough people, you just see yourself constantly getting pulled down. You should stay higher level, but you constantly get pulled down to do reviews of the product experience of this and that, because otherwise it's not good enough. And I need to protect, like my mentality is always like, I want to protect my team. So if we, the product output gets yelled at, it's like my problem. So I realized I need to bring out more senior product, like director level product leaders. So that was a very difficult time because I also had to continue to grow the IC level team. So at one point I had about like 15 direct reports across all the PMs and designers. Oh, and the fun thing about this chapter is like, they also decided that I should take on an analytics and data science team. And so how this happened was, this was like mid May, mid 2016. And this was basically, I was already very much behind. I needed to hire like 10 people, I think, across senior PMs, director level hires, product designers, and we had a finance side of the house basically had a transition. So the person who used to run data science, analytics, and data engineering, machine learning left the company, and we just got a VP of Eng. So I finally had a counterpart. So the data engineering, machine learning stuff is easy. Just move it to engineering org. And everybody was like, well, what should we do about analytics and data science? And they just looked at me like, well, Melody's been here long enough and she's analytical and it kind of makes sense. So you should take it on. And, and to be honest, I was like very much dying already. So that was not necessarily <laughs> the smartest decision. However, I also knew that we, if you asked me like independent of my stress level and my workload, where should this sit in the org? I would say it, based on the leaders we have at the company and the structure and the type of work they do, I think it makes sense to report on the product. So this team is already kind of run, going through a lot. If we move to someone else's, you know, for three months and then move again, that's very disruptive. So I was like, okay, let's just move right now because it needs to happen. And this team had three people. We just promoted a senior manager to director to run the team. That team needed a lot of help, extremely overstaffed and also needed a lot of the coaching and guidance. So I had to spend a lot of bandwidth on that. In addition to product and design, which I hired like bazillion people, including two very senior roles that took me six months each. I probably did, combined those two roles, probably did a hundred phone screens. And I would double as a recruiter on the, over a weekend. Yeah, why would you be doing the phone screens? Well, because we didn't have a recruiting engine at the time. So I think recruiting is like sales apps. You just like funnels, metrics, you figure out like, you know, throughput and you figure out conversion, you understand your sourcing philosophy, you know how to like top the funnel and you need to be precise and you just go. But at the time we weren't in that position. So I remember every single weekend I would spend four or five hours on LinkedIn just sourcing. I know exactly how and, that feels. And doing email outreach. And the, the problem is if you don't do that, you're never going to dig yourself out of a hole because one day you don't have people, you continue to do the work. So that was the most 
tiring phase of my time. And How did you balance your work life? No such thing. It was really difficult. I would say, you know, not until I got all the senior hired in place. So all the director level people in place. On the analytics side, it was a lot of team building. Surrounding the director with senior managers who can complement her experience and scope so that then she can hire a team because she can't manage 15 direct reports. She needs more of a structure to support that. On the product and design side, the same thing. I needed directors in order to continue to scale. And I got really lucky because I hired all six of our designers and I hired almost all of our PNs. And then I found their bosses and then I put them under their bosses and say, hopefully you like each other. And for the most part that worked. So in early 2017, I kind of emerged from like the, got to the other side of the tunnel where there was light. And at the time I finally had directors, but I still had seven reports because there are a few IC senior PMs, one being machine learning, recommendation engine, two being supply chain. These are the areas that I was the only one who can actually manage because of my knowledge of the business. So they continued to report to me despite having a few other directors. And this was about a couple months before the company went public. But it's funny because once I got to a place where it was like slightly easier, it's probably when I also feel like I've bored is not the right way to describe it because it was still very, very busy. I, but I think it was less challenging. So that's less interesting to me. And I also feel like I've accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish in the operating capacity. And that's when happened to be the when next few reached out to me to have coffee and rob one of my partners. And that was when I first was mentally open to like consider doing something else. We could definitely tell the passion that you had from mm-hmm. that prior experience. Like <laughs> we could hear it in your voice, but see it in front of us. And it seems exhilarating, right? It was a lot um, of work. Talking also, about it makes me tired yeah. every time. PTSD, yeah. no. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we could also tell that like you definitely prioritize that work experience and that work journey within yeah. that three and a half years, right? Yeah. Versus personal life. Yeah, yeah. And, and from the outside, a lot of people think it's shiny, it's great, things are going so well, etc. But a lot of people want to have balance. And I think within today's world, they always wonder like, how can you have both? And how did you mentally prepare yourself to to be comfortable with that amount of work on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I never, it's funny because I never thought it like that. It was, I would say two things. One is how I operate is very much like, okay, there's this thing on my plate or it's my responsibility. So I won't let it leave my desk unless it hits the quality. I would not call it a perfectionist, but I have a very high quality bar. And that extends to my entire team. Thus, I cannot tolerate I want to hire really good people because then I can trust them because I'm also about empowerment. I don't want to micromanage. So that's one that I think as a result, it just naturally, anything that comes through my desk, I just naturally put in everything I got because I feel like otherwise it's subpar uh, and I'm not trying hard enough. I, I pretty much believe in doing 100% of what I possibly could, uh, both in terms of time and in my knowledge and the capacity. In terms of balance, so it became more and more difficult. So I say first chapter was fine, even though it was like very large scope IC work. But I think when you start managing people, it gets draining in a way because if you care about them, you care about them in a sense, especially for people who have been IC and then promoted. I would care about, you know, as an IC, like, oh, this is how I think I want to have interesting assignment. I want to continue to grow my scope. I want to have career progression. So I can empathize with people on my team because I know that they will have similar concerns. Obviously everybody's different, motivated differently. So when you become a manager, it gets increasingly more difficult as you know, your scope expand. Towards the end, I had about 35 people across three teams and I knew every single one of them. So I was still, I have skipped level one at once. So I asked my EA to like, 
build a schedule so I can skip level one-on-one with everybody, which is very time-consuming, but I, I enjoyed that. Blueprint actually had a leadership training program launched in late 2016. And as part of that, they also helped senior people get matched with a coach. And that actually was pretty helpful because I could talk to her a lot about the struggle, the when I was needing to hire senior people. These people are like 10 years more experienced than I am. And I had this like doubt of like, well, why didn't want to come work for me? And that kind of stuff was very, very helpful to work through with a coach. I could talk to you for hours. I'm going through the same thing. Right yeah, I, I see you keep nodding. I was like, ah, yeah, exact same uh, types of experiences. The coaching thing, both in sessions of group sessions as well as in one-on-one, we talked a lot about energy management. And I think that taught me the importance of if I don't manage my energy well, my work output is not going to be as good. In an extreme situation when I was stressed, I already talk really fast and I am typically a very fast person. I think very fast. I talk very fast. I walk very fast. And it is... New York. (laughs) Well, yes. And also, I think it's a personality thing. People around the company knew that I was coming because I was a walk with like... For some reason, they just said I walk with intent or whatever. No, it's true. Like when I saw you at the elevator, when you came in for the interview, I was like, oh, that's Melody. (laughs) She came in quick. So, so, But then the thing is that like, if you already have this kind of physical trace, at a time of stress, it magnifies. What you don't realize, and what I didn't realize until later, is that it actually impacts people who work with me because they, they get intimidated or potentially yes, they're scared. Yes, exactly. And or I get extremely not patient, and I cut people off. I talk over them because I was like, I got to make decision next thing. So I realized like energy management is very important for me because otherwise I negatively impact other people in a way that is not desirable. Have you heard of uh, Tignum? Mm-mm. By any chance? Because I'm going through this leadership program, yeah. getting paired with a sponsor and coach as well. And we talk a lot about the energy that you have within yourself and how you yeah. share it with your team. It's interesting to read. Uh, yeah. You get a daily newsletter okay. and tip about how to have sustainable energy throughout mm. the day. Because as a leader, you have to respond right. by every single aspect of your human connection and feeling and emotion, right. et cetera, right? right. And yeah. it carries with you throughout your entire life. Yeah. You can't really be off yeah. because no matter what you do, a conversation that you have is always being observed by someone right. on your team. So I do want to make sure I ask one or two more questions on the IPO experience yeah. specifically. I mean, tell me more about that experience, you know, leading up to it, months leading up to it, the sentiment of the company, how was your experience? Because when I, when I was at Square, we did go through IPO yeah. and everyone's really excited. Right. It was like a relief for many people but right. jack dorsey also said hey this is just a milestone in a very long journey yeah. so don't just like let free when we cross the, the line i say it's very similar you know i think it's difficult to it's difficult to keep people focused but i think the team did a really good job i would say it's more difficult to manage after you go public because now you have a ticker it moves every day most of the time for no reason because you release earnings four times a year and in theory, in an efficient market, you know, tickers shouldn't move that much. I think pre-IPO, you know, in general, I think the, the message from the leadership team, and this is where I also try to convey, is just like, just, you know, try to have a long-term perspective. Once the company gets becomes public, it, you we will have short-term pressure. And I think it's a very difficult thing to do. And I don't necessarily know that Blueprint does a brilliant job. Most companies don't do a good job. And that's why it's being it's tough to be a public company. But we, we try to prep people to make sure that we have some way to think long-term versus just keep focusing on the quarterly results. We had an activation event at New York Stock Exchange downtown, and we had a cooking competition, and it was good to like have people be part of that experience. It was all the New York uh, headquarter folks was able to go, so that was, that was a lot of fun for people. 
It seems, you know, looking at the stock, it obviously has had a rocky yeah, for sure. start uh, to date. Yeah. Just high level, like, do you, do you think the market is valuing it correctly? And why aren't you there anymore, <laughs> actually? Yeah, so, you know, Blue Apron is an operational business. It's extremely complicated. For all types of e-commerce things that you ship stuff to people, Blue Apron is probably all the way at a complexity spectrum, like all the way on the right-hand side of high because it's a hybrid manufacturing and fulfillment process. Everybody else is like, pick and pack. You pick stuff, put it in a box, put a label on it, go. Sure, there's the, the warehouse might be big, but this is like you're slicing ginger, you're putting it back. It's, it is really complicated to manage. I continue to use it. I'm still a customer despite not having the employee discount, which was nice. I continue to think that the product solves a real need for a lot of people. So, you know, I'm also, also a shareholder. So in terms of why I'm no longer there, three and a half years is a long time for a company that grew that quickly. And also for me who had very, very different roles every couple months. And I think it was a combination of like, okay, I've been here for a long time. Two, company being public is a, is a good milestone. Three, I actually dislike being a senior exec at a large company. By the time I left, the company was about 500 people just in corporate, not including fulfillment centers and, and salary employees there. And I was managing a 35 person team. I hired everybody, but I no longer see them every day. I don't even know what they're working on. I don't do product reviews anymore because my directors do it. You know, the benefit for being senior is that you get to contribute and voice your opinions in more strategic discussions. However, you also spend a lot of time just maneuvering. You maneuver, you negotiate so that your team can do, go to get work done. And personally for me, this is not very energizing. Not the type of stuff I like spending time on because my aspiration, you know, I think it's not to be a Fortune 500 exec. If that was the case, then this is a good learning experience. But that was not the case. I actually decided to be a product manager coming out of business school because I wanted to learn how to build software. This all happened kind of accidentally and it was a lot of fun, but I, I think it was really good to be able to learn how to be a people leader. You know, I was like, okay, well, this is like less and less fun. The company is gonna, only going to get bigger. And especially after being a public company, you just have a lot of unnecessary or necessary, you know, things that you have to do as a public company. And I was only going to get more senior. I already had a very large scope. So it's not like I'm going to take on something that would be very interesting to me. So I think that was like the time I feel like mentally open, you know, and then XP reached out, which was an interesting, happened at an interesting time. And I actually considered, oh, should I go do this thing again, join an early stage startup, be a VP of product, help scale the company. But I decided that you know, this is going to be the same movie that I saw for the most part. Obviously, it's a different industry and the benefits. I have a playbook. I go in like X, Y, Z. I know how to do it. And it will be slightly different because this time I'll come in as an exec as, a well, as, as opposed to like growing into an exec. But it just didn't really energize me nearly as much as like something that's brand new. Maybe it's a personality thing. I just need something that's like more new. Operating versus investing is like a breath versus depth trade-off. So I feel like I'm now you know, operating as an investor with more substance as opposed to, you know, when I first did investing eight years ago in VC, it was more of an intellectual exercise. You know, it was like smart. You like try to figure out the market size. Well, this product makes sense. I feel like now I have more substance, not to say that people who don't have operating experience don't have substance as investors, but for me, it's just more interesting and I find it more rewarding. It'll yeah. be interesting to follow your career through the next five, ten we'll years. See, we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. Where you bounce around to. Being an investor could very much be the rest of the career. I had to develop enough conviction to do that in order to take this job because otherwise it's not fair for my partners as well. It, it literally took a couple months. I had the pro con list written up for like operating versus investing and noodle on it for a long time. 
the good news is that I've done investing before, so in an early stage sense, so I knew what I was walking into, so I could evaluate, which was a, a very privileged position because not not many people have that. Going back real quickly, one more question about your progression right. through the hypergrowth phase. How did you stay relevant through each chapter? You're a relatively young senior executive and, right. and leader at a company, right? Yeah. And the people you're hiring are probably more experienced or maybe have more specialty experience. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, it's just a good question. I think I am very much of a, you know, growth mindset, I guess. So I don't really, anything I've never done before doesn't really daunt me, I guess. Uh, I just, I just feel like, well, okay, kind of, I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I can figure this out. And there's this thing called the internet, especially. I mean, had it been pre-internet era, it'd be more difficult because you have to go to libraries and borrow books. But I, I just think that, that I've always kind of, looked at things that way, you know, build a mobile app. I've never done, at the time it was like less than two years of product experience and I never built a mobile app. And there, I think there are two reactions you have when when assignment like this come your way. One is, oh my God, I don't, I've never done this. I don't know if I can do it. Two is like, this is very exciting because I get to learn how to build a mobile app. I was the latter immediately. So I was like, I want to do that. And then let me take that first and let me go figure out how to do it later. So what I ended up doing was I just down. I remember I downloaded like 50 apps out there. I had a framework of like, let me break down, you know, what the app needs to do, what the business objectives are, and I just like try to grab the best user experience examples section by section. I literally I put like a hundred page deck together and then use that to scope out the product experience. And this is at the time Blueprint didn't have product designers, so we also had to everything we scoped had to basically have user experience element. So I just like forced myself into learning how to do that because otherwise I can't ship and I really want to ship. So I think it's just the, the strong desire to actually get to the output just always put me in a position to to learn. Uh, in terms of how I actually learn, I actually don't know. It's just more of a, it's just, it, it, you know, you kind of just like force your way into a problem and I try to solve it just using like common sense. I, I do think I my, you know, I have ability to kind of absorb a lot of information very quickly and like parse them somewhere randomly in my brain and I have a very good ability to recall and I have ability to systematically like put them in places to come up with like some explanatory s framework or system. So I think that kind of helps when you get into a new territory. Do you think any past experiences could have ever prepared you for that experience that you went through at Blue Apron? You know, I think having done VC was actually interesting because I think it exposed me to very, very different businesses, very different business models. So you're just like intellectually challenged every single day. So maybe that helped. I think HBS actually was helpful. Business school experience. I should get paid by HBS for, for having a plug here. You know, I think more as a like how to, you know, HBS is case method. So you just get trained to formulate your thoughts very quickly, absorb large amount of information of random industries, problems, companies, and you formulate your point ABC and you have to be like reacting and responding it and iterating on your response and your perspective as the time goes on because you're listening to people and you can do that real time. And you have to like, once you raise your hand and get called, you have to say something that's actually concise and sensible. So I actually think that's a very important skill as you become more senior because it's all about, well, internally you motivate your team, you create, come up with a vision, you articulate it, tell the story. Externally within the rest of the senior exec team is about doing the exact same thing. You have an opinion coming into a meeting, you observe the head of marketing sex, the head of ops said why, and I adjust my opinion, and I chime in, I say it in a way that makes sense. 
So I actually think that that helped more of like presentation settings and board meetings, senior exec meetings and things like that. We do want to switch gears and um, rewind it all the way back to like the early, early beginnings. We found that talking to a lot of our previous speakers, learning about their upbringing is very important. Mm -hmm. um, what your ethnicity is, mm -hmm. where did you grow up on, how your family, how are the values that you built over time and mm -hmm. have that carried with you throughout your, your life okay. so far. Sure. I grew up in Taiwan, uh, Taipei. I was there all the way through college. So, I just visited for New Year's and I loved it. Yeah? yeah. Nice. So I, I was there through high school and I came to the States for college. And what did you learn growing up in a Taiwanese community and growing up in a different country? And how did that apply as kind of certain values into your professional career? So... Growing up, I was like a very studious person, very typical Asian, I guess. I went to local high school, I tested into my high school, and I was always like studying, reading all the time. It was like following the rule by the book. I think I'm less so these days in a, as an adult setting as opposed to when I was younger. My parents, so my dad's an entrepreneur. He started his own software business 15 years ago when I was in high school. He was in the military, but he's like an overachiever, even more extreme. He got his master's and PhDs in the States. He got his PhD in three years. At the time, I didn't know that it was like amazing. And he would tell me that as if he was bragging. And I was like, okay, whatever. And then they're like, oh, that's actually pretty good. He was in the Navy because his family was poor. So he was in the Navy, but designing like missile systems for the, the Taiwanese Navy. And he retired immediately, like when his 20 years and got pension and started his company right afterwards. My mom, uh, my mom's a politician. Uh, <laughs> my mom's a city councilor in Taipei. He, she first became a politician because her friend nominated her when I was like fifth grade and just became an elected official since. My parents divorced in high, when I was in high school and my stepmom works with my dad. My stepmom's basically his company's number two, runs like finance, HR, and everything else. So that's kind of my family background. I said uh, my parents were basically pretty much left me alone, like academically because, speaking, because I, I think starting when I was very little, I had a pretty strong motivation to just do well. What I would say is important, I think, reflecting back, and I'll tell my friends this story. If I get a 90 on a math exam, what typically is a conversation I'll unfold at home will be, first of all, okay, let's say you missed three questions, so you got 90. Well, let's talk about the three questions. And one, is it because you were lazy, you, you finished on time, or way ahead of time, but you did not recalculate every single question, but that's laziness, or, did you not practice everything that you could practice in a practice set? So there's like a question format that you just didn't run into, but you would have been able to practice that. Well, that's also lazy. And the last one is like, well, you're just not smart enough. You did everything you possibly could in a practice set. You like recalculated everything, but there's just like a brand new question format that you could not solve on the spot. Okay, so that's like, let's talk about how to actually learn. So next time, you actually know how to do that. So it, it, like, this is like kind of how we talk about- It's like variance analysis and like Seriously. finance. Like, you know, if you look at your PNL like this year, how was it, why did you not read yeah. But it's important because it's like the attitude and I think that's like the first two types of errors were avoidable. The last type of error is non-avoidable because I'm just this smart or this dumb. So- It's a very unique way to grow up to have that kind is of that embedded right? in your okay. kind of... I just think it's common sense. I don't know. Like, so, <laughs> no, I, I, I actually think yeah. I mean, that's how I look at like my team's work as well. Of is it sloppiness or is it like actually too hard? And, and then so I know, and I just think anything that... This goes back to my, I think my attitude of like, I always just think there's things that I just try 100%. When I was coming into state, so high school, I, you know, I grew up, basically I went to all local schools, so I didn't go to American school. So taking an SAT was really hard. Taking a TOEFL was really hard too. So I took TOEFL three times 
to got to get to like a reasonable grade. And I took SAT twice. If we if we skip to a question that we usually wrap up the, the episode with and the podcast with is, what do you think is your secret sauce then? Both literally and figuratively, what makes you unique and sets you apart from everyone else around you that allows you that opportunity to have this hyper growth experience, go into investing um, and makes you relevant? I think the... The, the the one of my colleagues from Blue Apron, she's a very receptive person. So she is a very observant person, and we work together a lot on projects together. And she said to me that you're the growth mindset to the extreme. And she's like, I've never met anyone else who's as extreme as you. And so maybe that. And another thing is related to someone who used to report to me, who's also very observant and and perceptive. She, we're talking about superpowers, and she, she said, you're very good at absorbing large amount of information and quickly parse through it and like create some framework and system and be able to envision that, even though it's like extremely complex. That's more tactical. I think the, the attitude of learning, and I love learning, and I love just like getting down to answers. And I think that has probably helped me the most throughout my professional career because most of the stuff is like you learn on the job. You don't go to school for any of this. I mean, HBS tend to think that they teach you something. Schoolwork is more of an intellectual rigorous uh, training, I think, to help you develop capacity to learn as opposed to the actual substance and knowledge. So I think most of this is like professional trajectory depends on whether you can continue to absorb in the pace and, and, and level of rigor that you need to continue to self reinvent i guess Um, and what's the literal secret sauce that you actually like to eat Uh, and what's the food that you like to eat it with too especially with that sauce i'm trying to think how about hoisin sauce with peking duck Ooh, Ooh, sounds delicious i mean i don't just eat hoisin sauce (laughs) randomly but hoisin sauce is amazing when you eat with peking duck and you wrap it and you know, yeah. I want it for dinner. Yeah, I'm getting yeah, pretty hungry. <laughs> yeah, uh, when's the last time you've eaten that? Have you, uh, did you eat that with your family recently? Yeah, like? I think every time I go back to Taiwan, um, my parents were basically just bring us to eat places. So there's a good picking duck place right next to where we live. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fish Sauce. If you like what you heard, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and sign up for our newsletter for the latest updates and special surprises. Also, treat yourself and a friend to a Fish Sauce t-shirt from our swag store, fishsaucepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you rocking down the streets. If our mission resonates with you, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share with your friends so we can welcome them into our Fish Sauce family. And lastly, big shout out to our awesome editor, Christian Edwards, for making us sound better than we actually are in each episode of Fish Sauce. What's What's your your secret secret sauce? sauce?